Well, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. I think that was the shortest rainfall I've ever experienced. And it was right after Peter's prayer. It was like something from the Lord or something. But um, if you want to move back out, you're more than welcome to. It might rain again, though. But Mark chapter 12. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 27 this morning. Can everyone hear me at the back okay? All right, great. So Mark chapter 12, 18 to verse 27. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall, will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage now from your sacred scriptures, we ask that you would illumine our minds. We ask that you would give us softened hearts to receive your word this morning. Give us ears to hear that we might receive your word and live in light of your word. We pray that by your spirit you would do a work amongst us. Draw those who are here this morning who do not know you. Draw them to yourself by your spirit. Help them to see their need for Jesus, the resurrected King. Help them to see that he is their only hope. And for those who do belong to you, I pray that this morning, Lord, your word would strengthen them, encourage them, convict them, and that you would edify us according to your word. We pray this for the glory of your Son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So through um, chapter 11 and 12, we've seen Jesus having discussions, uh, debates really, with different groups of the Jews. In chapter 11, verses 27 to 33, we saw the chief priests and the elders and the scribes question Jesus about his authority in order to discredit his authority. And last week we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians uh, go after Jesus over the issue of paying taxes to Caesar. And they, of course, were, were attempting to trap Jesus in that moment. But over and over again, Jesus in his wisdom and understanding outsmarts them. He demonstrates his wisdom, but also he demonstrates their foolishness in the way in which they approach him about these different issues. And here in verses 18 to 27, there's another group 
that decides to approach Jesus. We're introduced to this group in verse 18. They're called the Sadducees. And Mark gives us a little insight into what they believed or, or what they didn't believe. As he says in verse 18, they say there is no resurrection. There is no resurrection from the dead. See, the Sadducees were convinced that there was no resurrection from the dead. That is the ultimate resurrection when, when people would be raised from the dead by God. The Pharisees, on the other hand, did believe in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, Jesus, theologically speaking, had actually way more in common with the Pharisees than the Sadducees. You see, the, the Sadducees rejected the belief in the resurrection of the dead. They also only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in angels, nor in any kind of final judgment. Death was the end, in their opinion. In some ways, there's a lot of similarities between the Sadducees and modern secular people. Despite them believing in God, they thought the resurrection from the dead was absurd. They rejected any kind of final judgment by God. These are similar be beliefs held by modern secular people. The reality is this. Your modern beliefs aren't as modern as you might think at times. You see, the notion of the resurrection from the dead or a final judgment is utterly absurd to the modern secular mind. That's primitive thinking. And the Sadducees thought similarly. So you have all these different groups, the, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and, and there's a degree of conflict and disagreement between them all, but they all, for the most part, didn't take well to Jesus. He was a threat to the religious order, a threat to their authority and influence. And it was the same for the Sadducees. And so they come to Jesus with the intentions of discrediting him and, and really attempting to bring credibility to themselves. And so they come to him with, one of, with another question. Verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the wife or take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now here in this uh, question, they are making a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now this was an ancient custom far before the law was ever put in place, but it was seen as a moral duty of the brother to take his now deceased brother's wife as his own wife in order to raise up offspring for his brother. This was meant to maintain the familial line. They didn't want the family to die out. Now, um, this is in general very weird to us, right? But remember, in the ancient world, your familial commitments and your family identity were way more important than your individual identity. You had a responsibility to carry on the family line. So they're referencing this passage to Jesus, and then they give Jesus this outrageous hypothetical situation in verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and, and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. 
Now in verse 23, they come across as though they believe in the resurrection, right? Where, he, where they say, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? They come across as, as though they believe in it, or at least they come across as though they genuinely want to know what will happen in a scenario like the one they've just described. But there's nothing genuine here. In their question, they're trying to prove or demonstrate just how ridiculous belief in the resurrection is. Who gets to claim her as, her, as his wife? Because they're all married to her, Jesus. See, this is what the resurrection from the dead creates. These impossible, outrageous situations. You see, they genuinely think that this debunks any real argument for the resurrection. How can you believe in the resurrection? Who, who's going to be married to who, Jesus? And so what does Jesus do? How does he respond? Well, he responds in three ways. One, he rebukes them for their ignorance. And then secondly, he partly explains to them the state or nature of what the resurrection will be like. And then thirdly, he shows them from the Old Testament that the scriptures do in fact teach the resurrection from the dead. So we see the first part in his response in verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So he blatantly tells them that they're wrong. They've erred in their thinking. And their error has two sources. Ignorance of the scriptures and ignorance of God's power. You don't believe in the resurrection because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Listen, almost all theological error can be traced to these two sources. Ignorance of the scriptures and ignorance of God's power. So Jesus confronts them on their ignorance and then he addresses their question by explaining partly what the nature or state of the resurrected life will look like. As he says in verse 25, For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. See, Jesus' answer to their question of whose wife shall she of whose wife she will be in regards to the seven brothers is no one. No one. No one will have her as wife. For in the resurrected life they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now there's a few things we need to note here. First, when Jesus says that as bodily resurrected people, we will be like angels, he's not saying we will be angels. He's saying we will be like angels. That is, there are similarities, but there is also differences as well. We are still human. Angels are not image bearers of God. We are. You see, Jesus' main point is that we will be like the angels in that we will not marry. Secondly, we need to ask, why will there not be marriage in the resurrected life? Because that's what Jesus says. Well, it's not completely accurate to say there will be no marriage. There will, in fact, be one marriage, and that is the marriage of Christ and his bride. 
earthly marriage between a man and a woman is meant to, in a small way, represent the marriage and love of Christ and his bride, the church. In other words, it's meant to be a symbol of that deeper spiritual reality. And in the resurrection life, there will no longer be any need for the symbol because we will be indeed with Christ, our bridegroom. We will experience the fullness of marriage in the new creation because Christ will be our bridegroom. Thirdly, we need to understand this. This will not be a reduction of love in the resurrected life. Some of us are probably thinking, if there's no marriage, how can you truly have the fullness of love? The fact is that despite there not being marriage, our love for one another will actually be far more powerful and stronger than any marital love we could have experienced on earth because our love will not be tainted by sin in the new creation. And so Jesus' direct answer to their question is, there won't be marriage in the new resurrected life. But Jesus doesn't stop there in his answer. He goes even further. He decides to give them the scriptural grounds for the resurrection from the dead. Remember, they haven't actually asked him to demonstrate or give evidence for the resurrection. They were simply attempting to debunk the resurrection. But regardless, Jesus sees this as an opportunity to show them the scriptural grounds for the resurrection, to show them the error in their thinking. So not only does he teach them the state or the nature of the resurrected life, there will be no marriage for we will be like angels, but now he gives them the, as, the evidence for the resurrection itself. Look at verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus here takes them back to Exodus 3, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush and commissions him to go to Egypt and to lead Israel out of Egypt. But Jesus quotes specifically what God said to Moses when he made himself known to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, out of all the passages Jesus could have used in the Old Testament, why does he use this one? There are many passages in the Old Testament that speak very clearly to the idea of resurrection. Why then this one? In fact, most of us would never think of this passage as alluding to the resurrection. Well, first we need to understand this. Jesus knows the scriptures better than all. He understands what the scriptures teach. He reveals and reveals that this passage does in fact speak to the resurrection. Also, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. And so Jesus takes them back to Exodus, the second book, to show that even the scriptures they believe to be from God teaches the resurrection hope. And so the argument that Jesus makes for the resurrection is rooted in the statement 
I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this statement leads Jesus to conclude he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And the question is why? What is it about that statement, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that leads Jesus to go, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living? What is it about that statement? Well, two things. When God speaks to Moses, where were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They were dead. They had already died a long time ago. But were they actually dead? You see, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were, were solely dead, returned to the dust, non-existent, then God would have said to Moses, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he doesn't say that. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, I am right now their God. You see, within that statement, God is declaring to Moses that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they have died, they are actually still living. It wouldn't make any sense for God to be their God if each of them truly died and experienced non-existence and simply turned to dust. It would be ridiculous for God to be the God of that which has ceased to be. As Matthew Henry states, I am the God of Abraham, not only I was so, but I am so. It is absurd to think that God's relation to Abraham should be continued and thus solely and thus solemnly recognized if Abraham was annihilated, or that the living God should be the portion and happiness of a man that is dead and must be forever so. In other words, in that statement, it's implied that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living and will one day experience resurrection life. Secondly, this phrase said by God, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is used in the scripture to convey the deep, meaningful covenant relationship that God had established with the three patriarchs. This was an everlasting covenant that he made with them. You see, if the covenant was only bound to the temporary earthly life that each of them lived, then the covenant would have lost its eternal significance. In other words, the nature of the covenant that God made with them transcends death itself. Listen to Williams Lane's thoughts on this. If God has assumed the task of protecting the patriarchs from misfortune during the course of their life, but fails to deliver them from that supreme misfortune, which marks the definitive and absolute check upon their hopes, his protection is of little value. But it is inconceivable that God would provide for the patriarchs some partial tokens of deliverance and leave the final word to death of which all the misfortunes and sufferings of human existence are only a foretaste. If the death of the patriarchs is the last word of their history, there has been a breach of the promises of God guaranteed by the covenant, and of which the formula, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, is the symbol. It is in fidelity to his covenant that God will resurrect the dead. 
You see, the Sadducees didn't see this link. They didn't see the relationship between the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and with the reality of resurrection. But we need to ask, is there any evidence that would suggest that Abraham had some grasp of this? Well, yes, there is. Remember, Abraham in his lifetime did not inherit the promised land. The promised land. Did God fail in keeping his promise then? No, not at all. In Hebrews 11, we're told that Abraham was looking forward to a future reality. In Hebrews 11, 9 to 10, we read this. By faith, he, that is Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then just a little further down, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 13, these all died in faith. That is, all these individuals of faith, they died in faith, including Abraham, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. And then he says this, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, Abraham walked by faith, believing that there would be a heavenly city that he would one day receive. And we, of course, know that that heavenly city is the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven in Revelation chapter 21. It is the new heavens and the new earth. See, this is why Jesus declares to the Sadducees, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. You see, Jesus here affirms and proclaims the teaching of the resurrection from the dead. You see, the ultimate hope that Christianity proclaims is not simply when you die, you go to heaven to be with Jesus as a spiritual being. The ultimate hope of Christianity is that though we die, one day we will rise with new, resurrected, redeemed bodies, and we will reign with Christ in a new heavens and new earth. This is what the Bible proclaims. This is what the great creeds of our faith proclaim. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed proclaim that one of the central doctrines of the Christian faith is the resurrection from the dead. It's one of the essential teachings of Christianity. Without it, you really don't have a Christianity. See, there are three fundamental reasons for why we as Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead. The first is this, because the Holy Scriptures testify to it just as Jesus declared. Secondly, we believe that God the Creator is all-powerful and therefore is able to do the miraculous. He's able to raise the dead. See, this is why Jesus says that the reason for the Sadducees' unbelief is due to their ignorance of the Scriptures and the power of God. 
But if you believe there's a God who created all the universe and is all powerful, then it's very reasonable to believe that that same God can raise the dead. And then thirdly, the fundamental reason we believe in the resurrection of the dead is because Jesus himself rose from the dead actually and historically. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the grounds for our own resurrection. That's the New Testament pattern. Pattern: Christ is the firstfruits of the resurrection, of our resurrection. His resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 12-23, where he's addressing some individuals who proclaim that there is no resurrection of the dead, he says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ did not historically raise, rise from the dead, then our faith is useless. Our hope in the resurrection is useless. Paul goes on to say, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You have friends, family members who profess their faith in Jesus Christ and they passed away. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says those friends and those family members have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And then he goes on to say this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, he's the first to be raised from the dead of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have died. For as by a man came death, that is Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, that is, those who are in Christ, shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's the pattern of the scriptures. The grounds of our resurrection rests upon the fact that Christ himself has been raised. He is the firstfruits of our resurrection. So what does this all mean for us? If there is the resurrection from the dead, how now shall we live in light of this glorious hope? Well, first, I want to speak to those of you who are here this morning, but you're not a believer in Jesus. You're not a Christian. You may be seeking, you may be interested, you may be a skeptic, but but you do not know Jesus Christ. There are many difficulties, problems, that all of us face in life. Different challenges, trials, struggles we face. And quite often, to a certain degree, you're able to overcome some of those difficulties. But there is a problem you cannot overcome. 
There is a problem you will never be able to defeat. It's the greatest problem that every human being will face. Every one of us have to face the problem of death. We have to at some point come face to face with our mortality. And there's nothing you can do to overcome that. You will die. Every new day, death draws a little bit closer. I'm closer to my death now than I was five years ago. And there's nothing I can do within myself to overcome my death. Over the last two years, many people have barricaded themselves in their homes. Governments have locked down society to try and prevent death. And with all of these actions, not one person has overcome death. At best, all one has done is delayed death. And even that's not totally true because God has numbered each of our days. When he decides it's time, trust me, you won't be able to delay your death any longer. Here's the reason why ultimately we cannot overcome death. It's because of sin. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion against God and his moral law. His law which was meant to bring life. We defied him and became lawbreakers, sinners, and therefore we've been condemned to death. As the scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. You cannot overcome death because you're a sinner. It's incredible to think of all the technology that we have been able to accomplish as human beings, and yet we still have no technology to stop death. So no matter what happens in this life, there is one thing that I know for certain about each of you. You're going to die. But Christianity also teaches that you can, in the end, overcome death by belonging to the one who has overcome sin and death for us. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 23. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The resurrection of the dead, eternal life in the new creation, it is only for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Your greatest problem is death, and the only solution to that problem is belonging to Jesus. And so my plea to you this morning, those of you who are here this morning who don't know Jesus, I plead with you, embrace him, believe upon him, trust in him. He guarantees you resurrection life. You see, Christianity, Jesus, will really only mean anything to you when the most important things in life become important to you. Things like truth, morality, meaning, and wrestling with the reality of death. Now, if you are a Christian, what kind of impact does the hope of the resurrection play in your life? How ought you to live in light of the resurrection hope that we have? Well, for one, 
you ought not fear death. Because even though we die, yet shall we live. It means also that safety and avoiding death should not be the most important things to a Christian. Now, I'm not suggesting that therefore you live foolishly, but safety and survival should not be the determining factor in a Christian's decision-making. Christians don't go overseas to pagan nations to bring the gospel because safety was their number one concern. Many of them went knowing that they would probably suffer and die. Safety wasn't their highest value because they had resurrection hope. So let's just take the current situation that we are in today with this pandemic. And I want us to just for a moment put aside the debates regarding masks, lockdowns, vaccines, and all the other political medical things. I just want you to put those things to the side and I want to genuinely ask this question. Does your response to this pandemic demonstrate resurrection hope? Or does your response to the pandemic demonstrate you have very little resurrection hope? Have you elevated health, safety, and survival that it's caused you to neglect loving others? Listen, I know there are Christians this very day who still have not returned to church, who still have not who still have not had anyone in their homes. In fact, I know churches to this day who still haven't gathered because of the small possibility the virus could spread amongst them. And I have to be honest, I don't understand how that demonstrates to the world the resurrection hope that we have as Christians. And I'm not saying to be foolish or irresponsible. But if you are a Christian and you have resurrection hope, then safety, survival, and health are not the most important values in your life. They ought not be. See, if our response is no different than the world, then how are we any different from the world? See, what are we communicating to the next generation if we are allowing fear to dictate the decisions we make. Listen to this question by Peter Leithart. Does your response to the pandemic inspire your kids to be the kind of disciples who plunge into the gloomy places of the world for the sake of the gospel? Or have you scared them into safe spaces? Brothers and sisters, we have the hope of the resurrection. And I pray that that hope would become so unshakable in our lives that it would inspire us to live worthy of that hope. You will one day rise like the sun each morning, like the flower that blooms in the spring and the tree that bears fruit and leaves. Death is not our end, brother and sister. Resurrection life is our end. And so let us live in light of that great hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for this glorious truth that death does not have the final word over our lives. That Christ himself, our Lord and Savior, has defeated sin and death and rose from the dead three days later, declaring himself Lord over all things. And we thank you, Lord, that even though we die, that because of Christ, we also shall live. And Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would help each of us to live in light of that hope, to walk the Christian life in light of that sure hope that we have in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.